In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's a beautiful phrase. Where does it come from and what does it mean? It comes from Psalm 69. In another translation, save me God, water is up to my neck. I am sinking in mud without a rock to stand on, plunged in the deep beneath the current. Why are we going to Psalm 69? Because a verse we've heard, my passion for your cause takes all my strength. Insults meant for you now fall on me. The psalm provides a subtext, a kind of running commentary for the propers of for today. Zeal for your house, I prefer my passion for your cause, has brought the psalmist to a hard place, even to the end of the line. If you've ever seen Holman Hunt's painting, The Scapegoat, the product of a pilgrimage to the Holy Land by the artist in 1854, which was the result in turn of a very serious conversion he was going through, trying to find Jesus somehow uh, through the Jesus that was being offered up by the Victorian uh, church and good luck to him. He persevered, however, uh, found it and then found he was very much uh, outside of conventional Victorian piety. And the painting and the reaction it got uh, makes that clear. The painting depicts the hapless, helpless he-goat confronting his fate as he stumbles into the steaming, stinking, sulfuric mudflats that encircle the Dead Sea. Hunt sat on the banks of the Dead Sea and painted it from life. The goat is desperately seeking to slake its thirst in this toxic, saline slough of despond. Hunt saw Christ there, the artist said, in the face of that goat as he painted it. Few others did. It is truly a painting I cannot bear to encounter, and yet I seek it out now, night and day, as I stare at it, or rather, as it outstares me. You'll recall that Hunt redeems himself with the light of the world, the painting of Jesus with the lantern knocking on the ivory-covered door, which every Victorian loves and is popular to today. What he did in this work, though, is, is unequaled. The expression on the face of that creature says it all. The incredulity, the disbelief of one countenancing in one moment, the imminence of everything he needs for life being taken away forever. Lift me from the mud, keep me from sinking, let me escape my tormentors and rise above the waters. If I'm jumping ahead to Good Friday, so be it. Every Sunday is Good Friday around here, at least on a good day. And as Jesus is driving out the money changers today and the animals, it's very much looking to Good Friday. He's anticipating his own being driven out after all, beyond the walls to be sacrificed, the ultimate scapegoat, ultimate in every way, final, inimitable, and unsurpassable. Both scapegoat and sacrifice 
The one, as James Williams writes in his foreword to René Girard's I See Satan, Satan Fall Like Lightning, the protagonist of a ritual whose central act is the killing of the victim, that sacrifice. The other, the scapegoat, the ritual of expelling a victim, driving him into a place where life was impossible and a slow, agonizing death was a certainty. Jesus finds both in the days ahead. Both are innocent victims of necessity, both at the same time. Both, as Girard will show, two different expressions of the same reality. The victim mechanism, the so-called founding murder, in which all human culture, every society, including this one, ancient and modern, originates. A ritual whose brute reality is hidden, concealed beneath some religious gloss. What makes Christianity unique in all this is its exposure of the shabby, shadow side of all human belonging, and its siding with the victim in all of this. Rescue me, God, lift me up, then I shall give thanks and praise God's name, for song pleases God more than cattle, or bulls with horns and hooves. Again and again, the scripture says, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. We've been there, done that. That dispensation is closed and finished forever. I want your praise and I want your work to create justice on earth. Jesus sets the sheep and oxen free, you'll note, driving them out with his rather soft whip. Even the pigeons all his parents could afford, whose necks were wrung to celebrate his birth in that same temple, no more to be sacrificed, no longer, never again. Jesus is driving out more than money changers who, like their counterparts in Vegas, vending machines giving you silver to feed the one-armed bandits, they probably go for your credit card ahead now, to play dice with the hopes and fears of rich and poor alike as they have invested their life's earnings in this world and not in the world to come. Jesus is giving notice to the whole sacrificial system that its days are numbered and counting down as it is winding down. That in a few days, his blood will be the last shed to purchase peace with God the last substitute, if you like. And if animals came over time to substitute for humans, this human, God in man, the co-creator God at that, will substitute for all creation, animals, humans, the lot. Those wheels will not anymore turn. What turned them up to now, this great slaughterhouse that the temple was, this place where only blood could bring atonement with God. What made that great machine spin? Sin. Does that mean there will be no more sin? No. Sin will turn and turn and turn, but humans will not burn and burn and burn for their sin. The Decalogue, which knew the power of sin, will lose its power to consign sinners to perdition for infringing one jot or tittle of the law. God's mercy now will have the final say. 
Mercy without law, of course, is meaningless, but the law is powerless to achieve that which it advocates. We need an advocate, and we have one in Jesus once for all. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul takes us through this state of things, perishing or being rescued, sinking in the mire or finding the stepping stone on which to put your foot. That stone is the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, scandalon in Greek, which says scandal to the Jews, which says that Jesus has taken on himself all the sins that we would much prefer to project on others. Scapegoat or shadow, the things in ourselves we find most inconvenient personally or nationally and see more readily in others, who will end up owning them if we have our way and do away with them before we will do away with any sin of ours. Jesus dies, innocent of all the charges against him, there on the cross. He senses everything he needs for life oozing away from him in an agony of release, of letting go or being let go, abandoned. The question we might ask, how can this be done? To Jesus? How can this be done to anyone, to any living being innocent of having brought this on themselves? We can counter with the law innocent. Who is innocent? Do not all, do not we all turn against him, the author of life, he who is our life. Even the disciples in the end will throw their lot in with the powers and principalities and join them in driving him through the streets, denying him in their last moments, shared with him the love, the loyalty that he showed them and shows them still. This is ahead. No, this is right now, this day in the temple, when Jesus puts on notice the powers and principalities, the false gods that we serve instead of him, because of our insatiable desire for the good things of this world. Power, prestige, and possessions for more and more of what gives us less and less. The Ten Commandments are bracketed by the two, the first and the tenth, which are the most important. No false gods, non-existent deities that derive their hold over us because we love the things they represent more than we love the one true God. Playing the victor's script, which says, winner takes all, and when you're all about getting more and more of what is giving you less and less in return, it all becomes all or nothing. Winner takes all. It's a script we hear rehearsed again and again from our corridors of power. And if what you haven't got is your neighbors, then you know where to go to get it. The 10th commandment about coveting says, not that it's wrong to want more of a good thing, but if your neighbor needs it more, if you merely want what your neighbor really needs, then you are wrong to want it to begin with. 
let alone going after it with whatever power of persuasion you can muster or sheer power in the end, if that will get the job done. Again, we define a victor's script, the winner's strategy, as the one that lets you end up with all the toys. A standard of living, at least that's the highest on the planet, well, sort of, and a standard of living so good that we dread the possibility that it might drop by one or two percent. That would be cataclysmic for us. We end up, or so we say, however, with none of these toys going with us to a place where the standard of living runs by a different economy altogether, living eternal life. But the kingdom of God is not just heaven at the end of all this. It's not tomorrow. It is today. The life we've always considered our best life and our best hope is the life we should be living now. And as scripture says from beginning to end, the needs we have for eternal life are few, materially defined, and they start and end with Jesus. So we can live simply. What stops us living simply? A lack of imagination. We think of imagination as challenging us to live with more. But the reality we say when we go across the world to Kenya is that people over there are far happier with less than we are over here with everything. We ask then for the imagination that says, I can't imagine living with so little. And the fear of having to live with less drives this nation with every breath we take. God has a solution to that. He will do the unimaginable and drive us into exile, expel us from this so-called paradise until we get our life together with less and come back to him. I wonder sometimes if Mr. Putin's virtual arsenal might be backed by not just reality and good hard military science, but the impulse and inspiration of God himself who might use it to get our attention as he used great nation after great nation after great nation in the Bible to bring their whips and scourges to unrepentant Israel when nothing else would get their attention. We will see. We know this as we wait to see. Jesus is all we need. He is our victory. And if Jesus shows us that sacrifice means sacrifice of self, of not just getting only what you need, but giving what you need to the one who needs it more, then let us follow where he leads us or where he drives us either way. And with Jesus, let's remember this, it is all or nothing. This is a jealous God. He is our all. He is our everything. He is our only hope. He is our only tomorrow. He is our only today. Praise God for that. Amen.